Hey everyone, husband here. And I'm wife. If you've been listening to us, then you know we're all about reading the Bible and reacting to it on our first read-through. Cuss words, crying, laughing, and more. We're passionate about creating a podcast that takes the sanctity out of the sacred text and simply stating it as we see it. But we can't do it without your help. We're asking for your support to help us keep this podcast going. There are two ways you can donate. Text SACDIS, that's S-A-C-D-I-S, to 53. 555 if you're in the U.S. with a one-time donation. Any amount helps. Or if you'd rather start a sustaining membership, sign up on our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash sacrilegious discourse. Membership levels start as low as $2 a month. We are amazed and grateful for our fans that support us now, and you can become one too. With your support, we can keep sacrilegious discourse alive and well for years to come. So please donate today. Text SACDIS to 53555 if you're in the U.S. Or sign up for our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash sacrilegious discourse. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Husband. Wife. Have you ever heard of OK Atheists? Yes, and they are doing some really important work. Our friend Zalem leads interesting discussions with thought leaders in the atheist community. We really appreciate their contribution to the secular community and think what they are doing is absolutely amazing. So today we have a fantastic treat for our listeners. In an effort to support their project and boost their platform, we are opening up our podcast to OK Atheists for Zalem's interview with Tim Sledge. If you enjoy this podcast and want to experience more of the critical input that OK Atheist lends to a free-thinking society, please, please hit the show notes to learn how you can join their Discord or view more of their episodes on YouTube. So... Tonight is going to be a wonderful chat with Tim Sledge, who is also on Twitter, and that is where I first saw his account. I did not realize that we actually live quite close to one another. We're in the same area, um, which was actually pretty cool, and we're actually in within the same uh, 
humanist uh, circles. So that was really cool as well. So I reached out to him and asked him if perhaps he'd be willing to share his journey with us. He started as a pastor in the Houston area and then um, is now a secular humanist. A lot of his viewpoints have been penned in several books, and we will share some of those tonight. We'll kind of talk about those a little bit if you're looking for something new to read. And I'll put the links up in the chat area. So again, if you're just joining, you can chat with us while we're talking. And we'll do a Q&A in a little while, or you can always raise your hand and we'll try to bring you up. We're not going to be like super formal tonight. So yeah, without further ado, Tim, welcome tonight. And why don't you just start by telling us a little bit about your story? All right. Well, thank you for having me. I'm honored and delighted to be sharing with you guys tonight. Pardon my voice. I've, I've got allergies and I'm a little bit hoarse. But um, so I, I, I was born in Austin, Texas. And we moved around a lot. My dad was a binge alcoholic. He was a great guy. I mean, when he was sober, he was incredible. And I learned a lot of good things from my dad. But every once in a while, maybe it would be a month or two months or more, he'd sort of disappear for days or maybe a week or two sometimes. So that created kind of an interesting environment for me and for my sister later. The other part of that was my dad was from a very religious family. He had six sisters. He was the youngest. So you can imagine uh, having six older sisters who really thought you were great. And uh, he was a great guy. But they were all very religious. And so when I went to see my grandmother, <clears throat> we'd get in the car and leave after a day or two. And she'd gather us all around before we got in the car and lead us in prayer. My dad, though, you know, obviously there were some contradictions in what was happening in his life. He was also deeply committed to the idea of Jesus and faith. So in this context, we ended up in uh, Snyder, Texas, a West Texas town. And I got my Sunday school class when I was eight years old, gave me a Bible. They gave everybody a Bible. And I noticed in the back, it said, there was a chart and it said how to read the Bible in one year, and it had readings for every day for a whole year. And so I decided I was going to do that. The next summer when I was nine, we had vacation Bible school. And if any of you have been to a Baptist vacation Bible school for kids, uh, usually it's on Thursday. You've had all kinds. You've had fun, crafts, games, Bible stories. But then the pastor comes in. Well, he told, he told me the same thing my Sunday school teacher, Mr. Reed, told us just about every Sunday morning. He would say, Mr. Reed would say, you need to give your life to Jesus. And he'd tell, you know, if you don't give your life to Jesus, you're going to hell. And I mean, he didn't make it super scary. I mean, there was, uh, there was stuff about, you know, just doing the right thing, loving God. And so during that vacation Bible school, I walked to the front, I prayed, I invited Jesus into my life. I was baptized, fully immersed in water uh, the next Sunday night. So when you were, um, sorry for uh, no, uh, butting in here a little bit, but when you were, you said the minister was talking to you a little bit about hell, that, that wasn't scary to you as a kid? Like, or was he just saying it very nicely? <laughs> well, he wasn't, that, that's interesting, and it's kind of hard to, and it's part of the looking back at it now, it's it's part of the craziness of all of this. But 
Now, I, I don't remember him shouting, and, and I like Mr. Reed. I mean, <laughs> another interesting thing, this is just a little Baptist church in West Texas, and, you know, right before Sunday school, he'd grab his last cigarette and come in and teach us and then catch another few puffs with my dad and the deacons outside of the church, and then they'd all come back in. And um, which and that was not supposed to be okay, but you know, I mean, it's just the way it was. This was like in the fifties, and so, so, I mean, it. it and I, again, I think this is part of the indoctrination that you get to a place where you feel, well, this is normal. These people just they're just trying to, you know, it's just like my school teachers. They're just trying to tell me how to be a good boy, how to do the right thing. And then, of course, in church, we'd sing songs like. Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? And the, so are your garments spotless? Are you white as snow? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Oh, I remember so many of those yeah. uh, schools, those songs. I, I went to Catholic school, but yours sounds actually a little bit nicer, even though the songs are really creepy. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but for, for my experiences, though, I, I had a nun who was like super mean. I mean, she would just... She would, you know, like not whip us, but like slap us with the the ruler, and you know, I had to, you know, sit up straight and you know, pray with the arms at a certain degree angle. I mean, everything had to be mm. perfect. But wow, yeah. wow. <laughs> so yeah. So anyway, th we moved. Uh, we moved to Odessa, Texas, and if you don't know about Odessa, Texas, that's the home of the Friday Night Lights football team, Permian High School. And that's where I went to high school. When I was 16, I felt that God was calling me to preach. And I walked the aisle again, and I told the congregation. The pastor there was like a second father to me. But by this time, my dad had um, not totally stopped his uh, problem drinking, but it was, it was almost stopped. And uh, he was going to church now. So I, I started preaching when I was 16, and by, by my senior year, I was preaching in some little church or not so little church in West Texas almost every Sunday. I was elected student body president at Permian, and in my speech, I, I said, look, I'm a Christian, and so I'm, gonna, <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not sure what I did to lead, but uh, I'm going to lead like a Christian. And... Uh, my only contrib contribution to the first Friday Night Lights state championship was most of the home games, I said the prayer. So I'd like to take credit for their wins. Uh, <laughs> not really. But my my life in, you know, Southern Baptist dominated West Texas as a teenage preacher was, wow. I, I mean, it was awesome. It, my I had one friend. And uh, his mother at that, at, you know, in high school, he, he would say, can I go? Do you mind if I go somewhere, somewhere with so-and-so? And she'd just grill him, you know, like, well, where are you going to go? What time are you going to But if she said, um, if he said, I'm going with Tim, <laughs> she didn't ask any questions. Speeding this up, I got married. We went to Wheaton College and just outside of Chicago, which is Billy Graham's alma mater. And. We ended up sharing a house with um, Philip Yancey and his wife, Janet. Philip, Billy Graham said Philip, this was much later, was his favorite Christian writer. 
And um, at, at some point, like everything sounds like, you know, just pretty mellow for you and like, you know, not not too much drama. I mean, aside from that, your father was drinking a lot. Was that it? going through that experience? Did you go through a lot of abuse um, or was it more of just him just always gone all the time? Well, you know, uh, a binge alcoholic is quite a bit different than like a daily or weekly weekend alcoholic. So life could be really great for months, and then he would mainly just disappear. <clears throat> um, wow. But, um, and and my mother, after my dad died, one of the stories I, I would tell, even in some of my sermons, <clears throat> was how uh, back then you could get your driver's license in Texas when you were 14. And I would tell the story that the summer that I got my driver's license, my dad, he liked to be with me so much that he had me chauffeur him around. Uh, he, he ran a fence company. He was the manager of it. And he would have me chauffeur him around all summer. Well, after he died, that summer we'd had all that time together. Well, after he died, I found out that the reason I was driving him around that summer was that he'd had a DWI and he didn't have a driver's license right at the time. Wow. And, and um, so it was more, you know, in uh, AA and 12 Steps, they talk about the elephant in the living room. So it, it was more about secrets. And he was like um, a lot of alcoholics. <clears throat> he was a very, you know, he was just a great person. And um, uh, there may be some people who know more about this than I do listening, but you know, one theory is that alcoholics are more sensitive than most people, and drinking is sometimes tied to just there's just too much to take in, too much to handle. I don't know, but it, it's really, I mean, it was hard in terms of just kind of waiting for the other shoe to fall. I think that's the main way it affected me, and that's common for adult children of alcoholics. It's like, okay, when is when is the shoe going to fall? Things are really great. When's something bad going to happen? Yeah. Just to segue a little bit, in one of the books that I had perused through, uh, Goodbye Jesus, in that one, you actually open up with a little bit about talking about your father and um, your childhood experiences. And yes. then mm -hmm. I recall that you uh, brought up some of the moments that started to first make you wonder uh, about your role as a pastor and to start making these, uh, I, I guess, forming questions that started leading to you eventually leaving um, the ministry. So do you mind chatting a little bit about that? Not at or am all. I jumping the gun? No, no, okay. No. So, um, well, I I went to seminary, got a, a master's degree and a doctor of ministry degree. And while I was in seminary, I became, I was a youth minister in Memphis, Tennessee. I would live there in the summer and then they would fly me <clears throat> to Memphis from Fort Worth, Texas uh, every other weekend. And one of the things that happened there, this was in Memphis about uh, two years after Martin Luther King was assassinated there at the Lorraine Hotel. And um, I was, to me, and one of the things that Christianity, I don't know if it was Christianity or just genetic, but uh, I, I know that some of it was my seminary training in ethics. The idea that color doesn't matter. Everybody's the same in terms of value and 
discriminating against people is really wrong. So I went to Memphis and um, we started this ministry called Dialeting. And what it was on the weekend, I trained some, uh, my, my degrees in seminary were in pastoral care and counseling. And so I trained some people, some teenagers to answer the phones and just let other teenagers all across Memphis call in and just talk about their problems. And uh, we, the TV stations gave us free advertising, radio stations did the same. And so we had a lot of people calling us and uh, Memphis, Tennessee back then, uh, was about 50% African-American. So we had Afri- African-American youths who called in and we would invite them to our <clears throat> youth group meetings. We had a swimming party at one of the teenagers' home and some uh, African-American kids came to the swimming party. And in the middle of the party, they posed the parents <clears throat> who owned the house where we were having the party said, you've got a phone call. So I picked up the phone and it's the father of one of the girls from our church. And he was really angry. And he said, I understand you've got some, and he used the N-word over there. And I said, no, I don't. And I repeated, I said, I know I don't have any of those over here, but there's some, uh, there's some black kids over here. I was just, you know, very calm about it. So he came over and got his daughters and took them home. And then I get around that same time, our pastor was very, he was more liberal in Southern Baptist life. Um, And he had been very vocal about positive race relations, but the the newspaper, I think there were two newspapers in Memphis then, and one of the two newspapers found out that our, our preschool did not accept african-american children and so one saturday morning they wrote like a full pay it was a huge article and just you know rightly so calling out the hypocrisy and the pastor was convenient i mean it was just accidental but he was at a a baptist uh, conference in new mexico when that happened and the newspaper article said that the naacp was going to picket our church the next day on sunday so an emergency deacons meeting was called, and our Christian Life Commission and the Southern Southern Baptist of Texas had um, some little pamphlets on, and they had one on race. And I I I had some of those because we use them in our dialogue ministry, and so I got a handful of them. And I'm going to the deacons meeting because I'm thinking, well, you know, this would be a good thing that I can speak up and highlight, just remind everybody what the Bible says about this. But when I got there, oh, my gosh, I heard one older deacon, there there was a a fear they were going to come in the church. And he said kind of under his his breath, if they come in, I'm going to kill them. And um, it, it was pretty clear, pretty fast. Nobody was asking for any Bible verses to be read that day. Mm-hmm. The younger. What was your What was your reaction at hearing all of that was, at the time? Uh, Did you just kind of go with it, or no? Just... I was like stunned, like wow, yeah, um, yeah. And and so in in the book Goodbye Jesus, I talk about what I call exceptions to the rule of faith, and this started happening, um, you know, before I was out of seminary, as with with these events. But one of the things that I learned, and I think most people do learn in church, is that doubt or hard questions posed about faith or about God, that's not good. It's, and and um, 
dealing with doubt is like dealing with the pain of a long distance runner running a marathon. You you deal with it. And it's a temptation to give up. And you know, all my life I've been taught don't give up, don't be a quitter. And so that's what you did. So with these experiences, you know, I look back now and many of them and I think, well, that that alone might have been a good reason to at least really step back and take a hard look at everything. But coming out of this training, this indoctrination, it's like, no, that of course you're having doubts. But just remember Jesus is Lord and you know, all these positive things. But what I would do, I'd just sort of it wasn't conscious so much, but I'd just say, you know, when I get more education, more experience, I'll be able to figure this out. So I just stuff it away for a while. I'm going to invite Brian up here with a question. Go ahead, Brian. Welcome. You talk about defending doubts. I mean, I mean, uh, defending yourself from, uh, you know, doubting and don't give up. Yeah. I've read so much of the Bible uh, that, that, that really not so kind parts, the nasty parts, the graphic, the graphic parts. I don't see how anybody, how did you deal with, I mean, with the really hard stuff, say like uh, the um, story about the uh, Saul asking david for a hundred philistine foreskins and and that sort of thing yeah how, you know at you know things like that and there's a lot of graphic stuff in there how did how how did you at what point did was it anything like that that made you finally go this is nonsense or i mean how did you deal with those really difficult passages okay good question so you know, as you can imagine, reading the Bible when I was 89 years old, and I remember thinking, well, what does beget? And this is the King James Version. So-and-so beget, so-and-so beget. What is beget? And so I encountered those stories, but I, I was so young. It's I was just, my thing, I was just, I want to read this, and, you know, I want to be able to say I read the whole Bible. So I don't know that I really... <clears throat> was even old enough to, I, I don't know, it just didn't register with me. If it did, it didn't stay very long. But if you think about a magician, and this is an oversimplification, but what a magician does, how they trick us, is they say, don't look here, look there. And that's what preachers do. And I don't think it's, I know in my own case later, it wasn't, it wasn't like, oh, how can I trick these people? No, I'm as much in the the thing as they are. Um, your pastor when you're growing up is that's where you're getting your focus of what the Bible is and what it says. And he's probably not preaching on those passages. Uh, and then when I became a, a, a preacher myself, uh, you know, who wants to hear a, a sermon on um, how God said to kill every living thing? That's not very inspirational. So you, you're looking for passages that, you know, Forgive, love your neighbor as yourself. Trust God. Don't worry about the future. Just trust God. I, I know this may seem hard to believe. Well, I'll give you another example. When I was in college, um, the first class I had on the Bible was an Old Testament survey. And one day, my teacher said, now some people say the God of the Old Testament is different than the God of the New Testament. The God of the Old Testament is mean, and the God of the New Testament is loving, but it's the same God. God is the same. And I'm sitting there, and I say, if you, if you don't mind, that, you bring up a good point there, because 
I've often looked at this God character, you know, a lot like a, a bratty little kid playing his Xbox and gets frustrated with it when he can't get to the next level. Yeah. Adam, Adam and Eve. Well, the garden was supposed to work. Uh, nope. Uh, kills, it kills them off. Uh, then the second part, be a good Hebrew and nobody gets hurt. Flood. Then he clones himself and kills himself and sacrifices himself for something that he didn't have to do. And then at the end of the book, what does he do? What does he do? He goes right back. You know, you got, you got the Jesus in the middle, right? It's like an abusive spouse, okay? Uh, he beats you, he beats you, and then he, he says, I'm not going to beat you anymore. Here's some flowers, i.e. Jesus. And then what does he do at the end of the book? He goes right back to beating the crap out of and burning everybody to death that didn't kiss his ass. Yeah. You know, it's like that brandy little kid with the Xbox who gets frustrated that somebody else is beating him and picks it up and smashes it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Dan Barker wrote a book. Um, let's see if I can get the title right. God, the most, the worst character. The Old Testament God is the worst character in all of literature. And he just outlines all these things. There's not a week goes by now that I don't just in my head just say to myself, him, how did you ignore all that? How did you believe what you did? And um, I, I hope to explain some of that as we talk tonight. But, but yeah, but, you know, Tim, um, one of the books you have, would this address some of that? You have a, a book entitled Making Peace with Your Past. I don't know if you're just addressing other people in general, but do you also relate to it as yourself? Like you're, you know, now where you are in, now in your life versus where you were. Well, that book was written in 1992 um, when I was a, a, a pastor in Houston. And I'll just say quickly a little bit about that book because it's a big part of my whole story. Um I, I I pastored churches, and uh, my first full-time church was in a suburb of New York City, and um, my second one was outside of Phoenix, Arizona, and then I came to Houston, to a suburb of Houston, and that's where I kind of kind of hit my stride in the church. I was a pastor up there, quadrupled in size while I was there, reached 2,000 members, and um, so I had a cousin, and alcoholism is all through my dad's side of the family, and I had a cousin when I lived in Arizona, he was at the Meadows, which is one of the top treatment centers in the country. And I went to see him. We've been close as kids. I hadn't seen him in years. And we reconnected. And uh, so over over the next few years, he would talk to me about AA and 12 Steps. And um, he told me that the Meadows had a program for ministers where you could go there free for a week because they wanted ministers to learn what they did and then refer people to their um, treatment facility. So I went, and oh my gosh, um, I was put in a group of patients. We did about, I think, five hours of group work a, a day. And in the first group meeting, first person, I'm an alcoholic, and they delineate how far into that they were. Then, uh, you know, I'm a heroin addict, I'm a sex addict. And I'm like, what am I doing here? Um, I wanted to run, but I didn't. But as the, as the week progressed, I my attitude shifted, and I I was saying, you know, I'm a lot like these people in terms of how my emotions work. And I had a life changing experience there. I went back to my church, and I preached a series of sermons, twelve sermons on 
adult children of dysfunctional families. I got real honest. I talked about I'd been having panic attacks in the months prior to that. I'd never made myself so vulnerable. And after the first sermon, I said, um, we're going to do some support groups to help with these issues. They'll, they'll be meet each week during the 12 or 13 weeks of the sermons. If you'd like to come show up on, I don't know, Tuesday night, whenever it was. I was hoping to have six people at least. We had 60 people. We did six groups. I had staff and a counselor who helped with some of them. I did three. And it just took off. And that, and we did that for several years. And I developed a workbook that people used during the groups. And that became the book, Making Peace with Your Past. The Southern Baptist Convention picked it up. But, you know, I was speaking all over the country, um, talking about support groups. And um, later, I translated in South Korea. I went and spoke in South Korea for 10 days and then to Peru. And an interesting thing that was, ha- was happening, now the group, but, but really the core of it, you read the scripture and you pray, but that's not what makes it work. What makes it work is that you set the stage in a small group of six to eight people, and um, you model for them being open, authentic, vulnerable, and safe. And you teach them how to give feedback to each other. And then you just, after about the second or third week, you just sort of turn them loose. It was so powerful what I saw happen in those groups. And after... and. And I know you, 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 you know, you were doing this when you were in religion, but I'm sure now some of those methods still apply, but yet now you can apply those techniques, you know, with, without the religious aspect to it. So you can, in essence, help, help more people. Yeah. And and if I could, if I could just say, if I could just say one more thing and then I'll, this one last thought is really important. So what started happening as I was leading these groups and I was, as I was traveling and I'd lead groups in other cities while I was doing like training, this thought crept, in, uh, crept into my head. This works better than praying to Jesus. This, and I'd say this is true of most ministers I knew. You, you want to help people. That's why you're doing it, believe it or not. For most people I knew, that's why I was doing it. I wanted to make the world a better place. It's like suddenly I almost accidentally found this thing because what I was seeing over the years was all these exceptions to the rule. In my first church, a guy, dramatic conversion, comes, he's near New York City, he sort of comes out of nowhere, he's in a crisis, he gives his life to Jesus, and a month or two later, he robs a bank. And I had so many experiences like that. Wait, this isn't the way it's supposed to work. So this whole thing of the the making peace with your past, the, the realization that the core of it is not the prayer, not the verses that are in the book. It's people helping people. And that, I would say, had I not ever gone to the meta, it's hard to say, but I, I think more than anything else, that very slowly led to an erosion of my, it, it made me able to say what I was really saying. No, I love that. You made a great point about people helping people. I drank for 40 years, damn near killed me. I stopped drinking, uh, boy, it's almost been two years now that I've been sober. Did it without a Bible, did it without Jesus, but it did require help. I was in the hospital for, I mean, almost a month and they wanted to send me home immediately. And my house was in no condition for me to come back. And I stubbornly stayed there because I knew if I went home, 
I was going to start drinking again. And so my friends, while I was in the hospital, they fixed my house up and made it clean again. And, mm. and the other thing is, and I'm telling you, there's really only one way to do it, but you need a lot of help. You need to put yourself in a literal prison. Lucky, luckily for me, I'm retired and I don't drive. And when I, saw, when I got out of the hospital, any place that I had to go, I had to take a taxi uh, because I could not walk to the store or anything. And that's really the, uh, but it still takes help. And I, I don't, I, I, I'm not going to ever say that I won't falter, but I think it can stick better when you're not attaching it to false hope and you're actually attaching it to, well, uh, my reality was my alcohol or my liver. That's what it came down to. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, Brian, I, I think you've illustrated this something that I believe, and that is that you did it with the help of your friends. And you can cry. I don't want to put words in your mouth that you don't agree with. But, but what I'm hearing is you did it. You took responsibility. You stopped drinking. I don't think it's as much as responsibility as fear. Okay. Fear, fear of dying. And, you know, um, fear of hell. Well, I just mean fear of pain, fear of pain, and yeah. and fear that I won't have any friends. That those were the two biggest things. Oh, I appreciate that. And what I'm saying though is, you're not saying God did it. You're not saying that it was a miracle. And so I think right. I think that a lot of things work, but not for the reasons they say they work. And I, and I think that. Um, and I, I have mixed feelings about AA because I've known some people who were really helped by it. And I don't want to, and frankly, if someone comes to me and they're struggling with alcohol or drug addiction, that that may be where I send them for lack of a better place. But <clears throat> the idea that you are, are never healed, you always need the organization. Um, I don't, I mean, I think your testimonial is important because it's one example of, of somebody taking responsibility and whether you were motivated by fear or fear fear of health issues or fear of loss of friends, you took responsibility for your life. And to me, that's a humanistic value. And it's a it's a realistic and true value. And I, I in our in our groups, we said, I support you. And so, Brian, I say, I support you. Yeah, thank you, Brian, for sharing that. I wanted to cover a couple more of your your books as well. One of my favorite books that I read from you was How to Live a Meaningful Life. Um, truly my favorite. And I think the reason, and for those of you that haven't read any of Tim's books, I highly suggest picking up one. You can read them at the leisure. They're real, they're highly digestible and they add, they they have such a secular message. It can help those who are actually still that still have faith, but it can actually still uh, reach out to the secular community because they're very non non-judgmental books, which is an approach that I really appreciate because it's just it's a refreshing take um, away from hearing, you know, that always an angry atheist point of view. So, so I really do appreciate these these books. Uh, Tim, would you mind telling us a little bit about that one? Yeah, so I I stopped being a, a Christian and I, I didn't write in my calendar. It was either 2007 or 2008. I know the event. I had lunch with a friend from high school who was, was an atheist, and I apologized to him for trying to witness to him all those years. So after that, and, and so what was the one thing? Well, it was finally having to admit that 
knowing Jesus does not supernaturally change people. And I just I just witnessed that for far too long in too many places. And so a lot of great people in church, a lot of good things, great things happen, community support. Therefore, you when you're sick or when someone dies. But I just had to admit that these are these are people. Some are great. Some are actually awful. <laughs> uh, being a pastor can be very stressful because some of the very difficult people you, you're dealing with and a lot of them are just in the middle of the road. They're 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 good people they're but they're they're human we're all human so so that was what caused the break and i always did it sort of backwards because at that point right at that point if you just said well who do you think jesus was then i I would have said well i don't think he was god but beyond that you'll have to get back to me so it took me a while to think about that but the thing i did think about real quickly was okay what what are my values and uh so i i thought about what in in the book uh, how to live a meaningful life the the sub the subtitle is focusing on things that matter so i thought about what matters to me and in the book i summarize at the end under a, a heading of mantra uh, seeking truth matters look deeper be willing to change your mind and follow the truth wherever it leads. Self-awareness matters. Never stop learning who you are, even when doing so is challenging or painful. Values matter. Build personal character on core values that work for everyone. I talk about strength. I say, visualize your inner core of strength and practice strength training to build integrity, self-reliance, determination, and resilience, kindness. Keep building your kindness quotient as you practice respect, empathy, patience, and forgiveness, while remembering that kindness works best in partnership with confident inner strength. And I I would, so this, this is, uh, Zaylin, this is a good point to, I think, for that I'd like to just say a little bit about what is my strategy in interacting as an atheist with the world, an ex-Christian, ex-minister atheist. I said there were a lot of great things about my dad. He was a salesman, and many times at night at the dinner table, he would tell sales stories. Like, and he sold cars and real estate. He he was always changing, but he, he could sell anything. There was a joke that one of his friends said, if they saw my dad coming to the door, they wouldn't answer it because they knew that whatever he was selling, they would buy it, and they might be sorry they did. So he'd tell these sales stories, and and I learned about the art of selling at the dinner table. And one of the things that I learned, and this is not about high-pressure manipulative stuff, you don't sell somebody on a product or an idea if you walk up to them and you say, you know what, you're an idiot. And that stuff you believe, that's insanity psychologically all that does is it makes the person double down on their resistance and we see that a lot for example in social media where we'll see folks going at each other you know whether they're uh, religious or non-religious and they just get into a big spout on twitter and what happens is each person just buckles down even harder in their own direction and solves nothing yeah and so for me i i don't know i certainly don't think I have the ability to convince a Christian who is all in, things are going well, they're, they're just, they feel good about where they are. 
then, you know, my comment to those people often is, well, good for you. I'm glad that's working for you. I wish you the best. And, and, I, and, I, and I frequently add, <clears throat> I really mean this, I would help you defend your right to believe as you do, because I think it's important that everybody be free to decide. What I'm really focused on, who I'm really focused on, is people who are already struggling and, and they're kind of in the early stages of questioning, or they're farther along, or maybe they've just left. And one of the roles I see is helping people know that they're not alone, they're not crazy. And, and I think that it's important, <clears throat> excuse me, that we acknowledge that um, what, whatever's, well, the thing that's wrong with churches, in my view, is that what they believe is not true. And um, there are a lot of problems with a lot of churches, but there are a lot of good ministers and a lot of good people in churches. I think it's important for us in the secular, non-believing community to acknowledge the sociological contribution that churches make. They provide community. They provide help when there's a, a crisis in your family, sometimes better than others. And they do it better if you're real active or a leader than they do if you're kind of on the fringes. So I just think it's important that we that we are aware. And if we don't understand that about a, a committed Christian, I don't I don't know how we'll ever help them because they just think we're we're stupid if we start saying, well, your religion is insane. I mean, right. But it's also important to remember or to keep in mind that, you know, many of us that are atheists, it's not really that once we have gone through like a deconversion, it's not our job or our mission to convert anyone else or deconvert anyone else because atheism isn't a religion. It's not a, a club or, or what have you. So, you know, it's really just more of, well, this is what I declare to be. Yeah, I agree. For me, because I spent all those years at the end of my, my the church I pastored was one of the top 100 churches in the United States in Southern Baptist life in baptisms. I, I convinced a lot of people uh, not only to become Christians, but to be more committed. And so now I'm kind of like somebody who drove a little bit farther down the road and there's a bridge out. And I came back to several miles back and I parked my car in the road and turned on my blinkers and I'm, and I'm saying, stop, the bridge is out. Don't please just listen. Um, that may be too dramatic, but I just feel like because I know for me in my early years of belief, when I would when I would face those difficult questions, I'd say, well, you know, I just need to get more training, more education, more experience. But. After decades of ministry and a doctoral level theological education, so those issues were still there. And so I just want people, I just want to be one person who's available for people if they are open enough to ask questions to be able to maybe save them a lot of wasted years of pursuing something that it's kind of like, you know, the Wizard of Oz. You're going to see the wizard and get there. Yeah. And there's a guy Absolutely. behind the curtain. Yes, and I and I really do recommend these books for everyone just to you know pick up and and take a look at. They're just really wonderful. I they, I know that that how to live a meaningful life. It was really it, it just really hit me. I related to it very well. So you know I just really love that one a lot. One of the other ones that I wanted to touch briefly on um, before we go was the four disturbing questions book that you had written and if you wouldn't mind 
chatting a little bit about that one. So in four disturbing questions, I my my thing is um, I like to try to make complicated things simple. And I see, I watch on YouTube, I, I'm a really a big fan of Pologia and uh, Myth Vision. Uh, guys, now his name is Derek and Bart er, uh, Ehrman. When you, but when you listen to these um, scholars debating, it's extremely complicated. Even you know, with all the training I have, it's like, oh my gosh, this is so. And so, one of the things I want to do is, how can we simplify the basic questions? And so, the the first question in the book, the first of the four simple questions with one, uh, the four difficult questions with one simple answer is what I call the power failure question. It's based on a very simple but true principle. Look at any religion you want, and they all have different levels of commitment. Gold out, gung-ho, totally committed, all the way over on the spectrum to in name only. And the this question is, why does, I'm focusing on Christianity, why does faith in the resurrected, empowering Jesus generate such inconsistent results. I have a tweet up today that goes something like this. It says, on the showroom floor of the Christian faith, your evangelist will tell you that Jesus will change your life. But later, when you go to the faith service department for repairs, you will always be blamed for any malfunction. And I went through that in, in my life. It's like, well, okay, you have you, but have you fasted for seven days? Okay, try that. Um, but are you are you really filled with the Spirit? I mean, it's always a carrot on the stick. So the, the question is, if Jesus is who the Bible claims, He's still alive and He empowers you. And he, why this range of how? faith affects people, how much it changes or doesn't change them. Why, if you were traumatized as a child in a in a home with, with someone you know, who had serious issues of some kind, why doesn't faith deal with that? And that's one of the things I saw in the groups. I saw people have been going to church for 40 years, and they've never talked about stuff, and they were hurting. Some of them were ministers. And then one of my favorites is what I call the germ warfare question. It's simply why didn't Jesus say anything about germs? He's called the great physician, and a big much ado is made about, well, he gave a blind man his sight. You know, he healed a paralytic, and on and on and on. Well, yeah, there was a handful of people in one place a long time ago, but if he really was God, why didn't he just say, and he actually said, washing your hands doesn't matter. You know, he said, that's like a ritual thing. Don't worry about the ritual. Wow. Well, I mean, why didn't he just say, hey, you know what? If you would wash, if you would wash your hands before you eat, not for religious, you know, ritual, but to be clean and your water, be careful. What water are you? I mean, simple answer. The one simple answer to all four questions, and I won't go into all four questions, is that nobody's there. It's not real. Christianity and all other religions are the creations of human minds. And there is no all-powerful, all-knowing, personal, loving God. For someone that has been indoctrinated for so long into religion, that's a really heavy answer to hear or a realization to have. Yeah. And I think for a lot of people, if you get down to what's, what's the last, the hardest last thing to let go of may be the admission. And the way I say it about myself, some people say, well, you're just so arrogant. You know, you're an atheist. You don't have a higher power. You think you're God, blah, blah, blah. And I say, no, when I was arrogant is when I said that the God of the universe had tapped me on the shoulder to be one of the spokespeople. 
And now I'm my brain and my body. And when I die, that's the end of me. I'm a speck in the universe. Now, that doesn't, for me, that doesn't lead to nihilism or uh, I'm not a cynic. I'm not a pessimist. And uh, in How to Live a Meaningful Life, I'm, I'm saying this is what matters to me. And I, you know, I'm very careful to say you've got to decide what matters to you. But this is what matters to me. Life is what you make of it. But I think for a lot of people letting go of that idea, well, this life is, you know, when I die, I'm, it's going to be even better. Um, that's a hard one to let go of. Well, I really do appreciate you coming on here and chatting with us. Just to start wrapping things up, did you have anything else that uh, you'd like to add before we close for tonight? Well, again, thanks for having me. I like this um, informal atmosphere. I, I I may have rambled too much, and I apologize for that. Not at all. And it was really nice to hear more about your background. I and mean, we so often see people on Twitter, and we really don't know who's behind the, the accounts. And so it's actually really refreshing to hear the voice and the story behind everything. So really appreciate you coming out here and, and chatting with us. Hopefully this recorded. That's my my one hope. Yeah. <laughs> if it didn't record, we will have you back. All right. Thank <laughs> you. Well, thank you for having me. And uh, I, I'm glad to be able to share with you tonight. Yeah, of course. Enjoy your evening, everyone. And hopefully you all will have a wonderful Friday. Good night, everyone. Right. Good night. Thank you. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.